Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Martyr General Manager and CEO Jeffrey Parker joins me. Now, we'll get his thoughts on additional federal funding for public transportation upgrades and programs. And also, what are the top priorities for Marta, not just here in the Atlanta area, but as part of a regional approach to this transit landscape? Plus, there's a forgotten group within the medical community on how they're coping during the pandemic, residents. And also, Amazon is hiring. We'll tell you for what and how you can apply. Those conversations all on today's Closer Look. But first this, COVID-19 case rates are starting to decline, but Georgia is still far from out of the woods. State epidemiologist Sherry Jinzek says there's still a long way for infections to fall before Georgia reaches levels of low community spread. But by no means does this mean that we have nothing to worry about. We are beginning to see some declines from a level that is beyond where we have ever been before, certainly indicative of of the potential for high risks of transmission. Drinzik says the Delta variant of the coronavirus has fueled a surge in COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations and deaths. And she goes on to say more than 2000 people lost their lives in the first two weeks of September up from 500 deaths in the entire month of August. In other news, a federal judge has granted a request from the Biden administration to extend a pause in a lawsuit about Georgia's plans to cut ties with healthcare.gov. The Feminist Women's Health Center and Planned Parenthood of Southeast sued top Trump administration health officials in early January over their approval of Georgia's plan. And they argued Georgia's plan to push people shopping for Obamacare insurance to third-party brokers instead of healthcare.gov will make it harder for those folks to choose coverage that actually fits their needs. Well, then the Biden administration moved into the White House and put Georgia's plan on pause. Now, federal officials also aren't keen on it. A federal judge has agreed to their request to extend the current hold on the case until November 12th, That will give the Biden administration officials more time to decide whether to let Georgia's plan proceed. And finally, as mentioned on yesterday's program, Amazon is hiring all over. That includes here in the Atlanta area. And today is Amazon Career Day. So joining me now with more is Jordan Deagle. He's the Amazon Career Day organizer. That's on his resume. Jordan, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Listen, let's begin with this. What makes Career Day a little bit different from uh, regular job opening announcements that you all have? Well, I think, uh, you know, the timing is an important part of this. According to a, a recent survey that we've looked at by, by PwC, as much as 65% of American workers are, are currently looking for a new job or a career shift. So like, that's millions of people. And, you know, Amazon Career Day, we structured it and we created it uh, to really help all job seekers, whether they want to work at Amazon or if they want to work somewhere else. So 
you know, the day is our biggest and our most ambitious event yet. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest job fair in the country. Um, you're not going to see the, the size or the scale anywhere else. Uh, not nearly uh, the size or the scale. And, you know, we've really broken it up into two pieces. So, you know, if you attend, we have we have first personalized career coaching sessions. So we have more than 20,000 people who've already signed up uh, for a one-on-one coaching session with an Amazon recruiter. Mm-hmm. And in these sessions, you know, people have the opportunity to to talk about just about anything like they can review a resume they can discuss tactics for interviewing you know like if perhaps you've gone through a couple and you haven't been successful you can dig deep and, and find out how to make the changes to, to become successful um, you know and we've also left it open so that if there's other questions or concerns that they can be directly addressed in those sessions and then on the, the second half of this is just a really interesting um, main stage program that we have it's going to be headlined by our new uh, CEO Andy Jassy, and he's going to be sharing a combination of his own experiences. He's going to be talking about you know his vision for the company and where it wants to go, mm-hmm. um, and he's also going to be giving advice to job seekers um, as well. And then we're, we're pulling in a bunch of external folks. So we have experts, we have HR professionals, we have senior leaders who are going to discuss a wide array of topics throughout the day today. You know, including the, the resume pieces that I touched on, improving your your various skills, learning how to transition a career, mm-hmm. um, and, and much, much more. So, Jordan, someone listening to this interview said, that's great. Now, where should they go to get all this information and all this career advice? It's, it's, a, it's a really easy answer. So you just go to AmazonCareerDay.com. Mm-hmm. Um, the event kicks off today, and there, there's going to be a lot there for job seekers. We, we announced earlier in the month 40,000 uh, open corporate and tech jobs. So this is this is in businesses like AWS, sustainability, retail, advertising, the, the devices team like Alexa, and so on and so forth. And then just yesterday, we also announced another 125,000 jobs in our operations network. So these are really solid jobs. I mean, there's not a lot of companies where you can essentially graduate from high school, get a job, and on day one, you're going to be making an average starting pay of $18 um, an hour. You're going to have full health benefits mm-hmm. from day one. You're going to have 401k matching plan. You're going to have uh, paid paternal, or sorry, paid pater- parental leave mm-hmm. up to 20 weeks. Maternal leave, um, you're gotcha. also going to have Correct. And then you're also going to have access to company-funded upskilling programs. So nope. this, is, this is one of the new pieces that we're really excited about because uh, you're seeing it a lot in, in the industry that people are really seeing career advancement and upskilling as like the new minimum wage. And and we came out late last week announcing that we we're actually going to offer to cover and pay for 100% college tuition for folks that work at the company. So yeah, it's, it's an exciting was, time to join. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions down the road here. But I want to ask you about this because you all are promoting this as urgent hiring and you have sign-on bonuses uh, for folks that might have been out of work for a few months due to the pandemic, you all will consider immediate hires, even if there's a little bit of an employment gap here. Absolutely, we've been we've been very fortunate. Uh, dating back to the start of the pandemic, like we we were in a position to become a bit of a lifeline for folks who didn't have the ability to leave home, and and we were able to provide a lot of the the things that they needed. Um, and and due to that, we've experienced a significant amount of growth. And so, you know, this is growth across all of our business lines, and we're eager to fill those 
those roles. And so uh, anyone who's interested, mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend uh, they take a look at that. And Jordan, as we wrap up, I, I know that Amazon has reportedly taken measures to improve its workplace safety issues, especially in the warehouses, such as fulfillment centers. Uh, are a majority of the openings in the warehouses? You said you mentioned tech. So this is across the entire company, not just these fulfillment centers. This is across the entire the entire company in Atlanta, specifically. We have we have over five thousand roles in our fulfillment centers. Uh, we have nine thousand in Georgia, but we also have hundreds of, of opportunities open right now in the in the corporate and tech space. So there's something here for everyone. Um, you mentioned that Amazon recently announced an education benefits program for employees as well. Can folks learn more about that as well if they go to AmazonCareerDay.com? They certainly can, and I just say uh, that we announced the, the new piece that we announced was the the hundred percent college tuition. So books and fees, all everything's taken care of. But we've been in the game for a long time. Like our career choice program, uh, which specifically trains folks the skills to transition into a higher paying in demand role, whether that's at Amazon or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. We've had that going for ten years, and we have another program that we call the the Amazon Technical Academy. And essentially what it does is it takes non-technical workers and within nine months, it provides them with the training to then transition into a um, full-time software development engineer role. So you'll see these folks, they essentially get a salary bump of, of something like 93% and it takes place within nine months. So it's, it's, a, it's proven, it works, and we see a, a ton of demand within the company for it. Non-technical people, that would be me is what you're saying. I have a future in IT and, and software <laughs> development. Is that what you're saying, Jordan? <laughs> you and I both, correct. Listen, let me ask you this, because uh, unfortunately for some folks, everyone is not connected online. Um, we've This is an issue in America. I'm sure I'll be talking about this again. But is there any way for folks who may not have Internet access, how can they be a part of this? Where can they still find out about positions? Can they? Is there any other way? We, so we've been working on that, and, and we'll have more to say on that in the future. At, at present, the large majority of our offering does take place online, mm-hmm. uh, but stay tuned for more. All right. Jordan Digo, Amazon Career Day organizer, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, give folks that website for today. Yes, it's www.amazoncareerday.com. And thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
President Joe Biden has a Build Back Better agenda. Now, his vision, as touted by the White House, is to, quote, create jobs, cut taxes and lower costs for working families, paid for by making the tax code fairer and making the wealthiest and large corporations pay their fair share, close quote. Also included in the president's vision, well, there's that trillion dollars plus bipartisan infrastructure framework, bipartisan being the key word there. As explained from the White House, it could make transformational and historic investments, such as in clean transportation infrastructure. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg has been championing the president's plan. In May of this year, he addressed the Senate about the importance of public transit investments as part of Biden's infrastructure plan. Public transit is key to building vibrant and interconnected communities, creating jobs, reducing pollution, combating climate change, advancing racial equity, and providing travel options for everyone. Too many families across the nation are forced to choose between living impossibly far away from work so they can afford housing or paying more for housing than they can afford in order to have a reasonable commute. This puts a toll on working families who lose precious time with their loved ones and money needed for other essentials. And there's another problem. The U.S. Department of Transportation estimates, as it relates to public transportation, there's a repair backlog of over $105 billion, including more than 24,000 buses, 5,000 transit rail cars, and 200 stations. Well, what about Georgia's largest transit system? Of course, MARTA. Joining me now is MARTA's general manager and CEO, Jeffrey Parker. Welcome. Good to see you again. Great to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Let's begin with your assessment. When you think about the overall snapshot of the nation's transit system, uh, President Biden had says that it is inadequate. Um, what's your response to that? You know, we've got to uh, we've got to invest more. We've got to invest smarter. Um, I think that we can look across all of our transportation and really the infrastructure in the United States is uh, in desperate need of upgrading and expanding. And public transportation is, is part of that. I think the secretary's comment in your lead up uh, around the trade-off between affording housing and the affording a reasonable time to commute is, is key here. And we've got to do it in a way that, uh, you know, that, that provides a reliable uh, system. We're, we're fortunate here in Georgia. We've got a, a well-funded transit system, but I think our challenge is expanding. Well, in the segment prior to this, you heard me talk to Jordan Deagle from Amazon. Look, they're hiring people. But as you know, yeah. if folks do not have a, a car, they need adequate public transportation probably to get to those jobs. Uh, when you think about the fact that Atlanta has been this booming, you know, business mecca, so to speak, the last, especially in the tech area. How do you see MARTA being able to keep up with the job demands that are outside right here in this Atlanta area? You feel like y'all could do more in moving people, getting people to those areas? Yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, I think two things, you know, need to happen. We've got we've got plans to expand transit uh, to touch uh, areas where where affordable housing is building more affordable housing and touching job centers in, in a better way. But I think uh, equally is important that we need to uh, encourage density, smart density, smart growth around this region. We've got a jewel of a heavy rail system that MARTA operates and, and we've got great opportunities to build more density around those stations that will make us more efficient. Well, and that obviously is also part of the future, but let's also let's pause and shift for a moment and talk about now because we're still in this pandemic. 
Have you all, you've received yeah. some federal funding because of the pandemic. And even last, uh, just last week, the U.S. Department of Transportation, their Federal Transit Administration said, look, we got about $2.2 billion in competitive grant funding for transit systems that might still need additional pandemic-associated yeah. needs. What do you all need? You all still have a need as it relates to operations and this pandemic. Yeah, we're you know we're, we've been uh, like all transit agencies around the around the country. We've been hard hit, um, less so than our pair transit agencies, and and that's just because the sales tax revenue here in Metro Atlanta hasn't fallen off, um, and that's our biggest funding source. But we've received several tranches of uh, funding from the FTA, and it is keeping us solvent. We're you know we're, we're we've had another balanced budget actually with a surplus. And with the, you know, with the federal assistance we we have received and will be receiving in the future, uh, we've got a strong uh, fiscal uh, system in place to continue to manage uh, the operation that we have. So, so we're we're confident about our future. Well, Jeff, let me ask you this: in terms of the system's ridership level, I imagine it has not returned to quote normal or pre-pandemic levels. And I imagine it's probably still on the decline in terms of buses as opposed to rail. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, we're, we, you know, we're, there's no decline going on. We're, we're uh, you know, there is a very small, uh, gradual um, increase. Uh, you know, it was the customers who are largely, our important customers who are largely, uh, you know, transit dependent that stuck with us. And, and we were there for them and we continued to operate. Um, you know, when the bottom fell out of COVID-19 in terms of ridership, um, you know, when the pandemic was happening and all the uncertainty around then, we've had this gradual in- incline. Um, we're carrying about uh, 55-60% of our customers pre-pandemic on our bus system and about just approaching 50% on our rail system. And it is just a gradual increase. Uh, what we need to see is the office buildings in, in downtown and, and midtown and perimeter fill up. And that's what will uh, rebound us in terms of ridership. But if those buildings that you mentioned in downtown and the perimeter, if folks are very happy and businesses are, listen, the teleworking is best for our employees. I mean, is that you have some concern? Because Teleworking, of course, increased last year, but what assessments have you all made to better calculate who's taking MARTA now? Because folks are working from home a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think what, what, what we've seen and it's, uh, you know, similar to what, what our fellow transit agencies have seen and and similar to what the, uh, what GDOT sees with, with the road system. When I talked to uh, Commissioner McMurray, is what we think is that the kind of the peak of the peak, right? The busiest part of the rush hour is probably far away from returning to what it was. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a big but here that we all need to remember. We are historically and going to continue to be top five in terms of growth. So so even with that, that change in terms of how people are working, we're going to continue to grow as a region. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, while it's changed, our ridership will come back. And, it, and it's so important to the economy of this city and this region that, that public transportation is there to serve not only those transit dependents, 
But um, let's think about what Microsoft um, is doing. They've decided to build a campus next to our next to our uh, banking station. Mm -hmm. And why did they do that? Because they know that their employees um, want to have options to get to work. So so the people who are driving the growth and the people who are transit dependent need our services. And that's going to continue to grow in this in this city, in this region. Well, Microsoft also got a pretty good deal too on that piece of land there that was sold by Urban Creek Partners. Listen, I want to go. I want to. But I'm sure they could have. They should, they could have gotten a good deal uh, somewhere away from Marta as well. That that so is true. They that chose is to be facts. That is true. I want to be fair. Those are facts. But you can't overlook all the optics there. Now I want to read something to you because this yeah. was a uh, Alex Carner, who is a community and regional planning professor at the University of Texas at Austin, who was working on a transit tracker project during this pandemic. And here's what he said, quote, agencies should focus on people who continue to use transit to make systems that match their needs. That will be key to an equitable recovery. How much truth is in that statement? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I think that's, you know, I think that's, that, that's true. Um, We've got to focus on where the biggest need is, um, you know, right right in front of us, right? We're, we're reacting to, uh, to what's going on in terms of ridership. We're, you know, we're working on a, uh, a uh, comprehensive review of our bus system in order to really uh, make some fundamental changes to our bus system to make sure that we're serving the people who, who need the, the system and, and, um, and equity is a huge piece of that. And uh, it's it's an important piece of our, our focus uh, here at MARTA and, and public transportation in general. I don't think there's another, you know, let's let's be honest, um, public transportation, I would argue, is is the most equitable system um, that we have to move people around from from where they live to where they need to go. Are you all looking at, Jeffrey, in terms of perhaps more modifications, more changes as it relates to how this pandemic has been fluctuating back and forth? Do you, I mean, we see that, I just said some of the cases are declining here in Georgia, which is a good thing, but who knows, another variant might come about, who knows with this thing. So are you all paying attention to what's been working when you've had to maybe reduce bus routes or, you know, and I don't know if you're back to 100% with your full buses online, but you all are paying attention to all of that. Yeah, we're, we, you know, we, we have restored all of the bus routes um, that we uh, historically have operated pre-pandemic. Um, they're not all at the same frequency that uh, they were pre-pandemic to really meet the needs. We, you know, we haven't, we haven't uh, abandoned anyone uh, with this re- restored service. Um, but there are routes that we see heavier ridership. Um, many, many of those routes are in um, black and brown communities mm-hmm. where we see strong, heavy ridership. And, and we want to, um, you know, provide, uh, you know, frequency of service so that, one, um, people can feel safe on that system. Um, but also, you know, they're just trying to people are just trying to do do the things that they need to do in terms of getting to school and getting the jobs and, and be reliable for them. So we're we're focused on, on that. Let's move then from the customer service then to infrastructure. And I know it's a question you get a lot. Listen, we know heavy rail is very expensive. Right. I, I remember when I moved to Georgia, y'all were just finishing up the Dunwoody station and, and how what a big deal that mm-hmm. was in the future. You see expanding heavy rail at all within, let's say, the next 
50 years. I mean, I know that's a long projection, but considering how long it takes to lay down heavy rail, that's a pretty good uh, timeline. You see expanding heavy rail for MARTA. And how far out? Yeah, yeah, well, um, I think it's I think it's uh, needed. I think it's um, important that we look at uh, those heavy rail e- extensions um, and see where where we can do it. You, you know, Gwinnett County has uh, you know has, has thought about it. Um, continued focus on heavy rail out towards the uh, the east. You know, along the I twenty corridor. So I think these these things uh, need to be worked on, advanced. But at the end of the day, um, we we just simply locally are not investing enough uh, funds to support these huge infrastructure programs. And so I don't want to throw cold water on any of these projects. But I don't don't I also don't want to lead people down the road of thinking that that we can just deliver these projects within the means that we have today. So I think, you know, I think the region's got to look at, at more funding sources. Obviously, um, the federal government is stepping up and mm-hmm. we've got to be prepared for that. You know, we have we have funding in within the city of Atlanta and Clayton County to expand transit. But those aren't going to fund uh, heavy rail extension projects. And, uh, you know, there's great opportunities um, for us to expand heavy rail and, and make sure that um, the corridors that are most congested, and also in areas where housing is more affordable. If you look out on the east side of, uh, of the city, um, housing is more affordable out there and making better connections to, uh, to the core of the city, but also up towards, you know, sort of the north, northern tier of the city where a lot of higher paying jobs are. So we've got we to connect people to where, where the jobs are and, and, you know, encourage people to have, you know, to deal with that trade-off that the mm-hmm. secretary mentioned, right? And that's the key. Dealing with that trade-off between affording housing and, uh, you know, having these unbearable commutes, and that's just not what what people deserve. When you look at counties like Gwinnett and Cobb, and I'll focus on Gwinnett for a moment, because again, you know, we, we it failed. You know, what what is it? What more can you all do to convince some of these other perimeter, these suburbs, these officials out there and to get yeah. folks to get on board with Marta. I think last time there was a there was a good feeling you all had that that would pass in Gwinnett and, and it didn't. Yeah, you know, I mean ultimately um it's a big local decision, right? Mm-hmm. But but your question was what can we do? Um we've got to be good stewards, right? There there is um the, you know, the brand of of transit in here in Metro Atlanta is so strongly tried to, tied to MARTA, right? People talk about um, MARTA as kind of that generic transit, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've got to continue to have, you know, 10 years of balanced budgets, um, demonstrate to people that we can operate an agency um, fiscally solvent, strongly, we need to recognize that equity is a big issue for people and deal with equity issues here within our jurisdictions where we're currently serving. We've also got to work closely with these counties that are growing quickly. You know, Cobb and, Cobb and Gwinnett, I'll focus on those two because those are the two that are part of the original MARTA system that, that could join and, uh, you know, continue to work with uh, ever-changing, you know, leadership in those counties who are 
who you know I've spoken to to those counties and they are they are focused on transit and, and we're going to continue to work with them support them um, but you know at the end of the day delivering projects mm-hmm. uh, reliably um, and you know and within budget and within timeline is is important because we're so tied to that brand of transit right if Marta is not delivering for this region people are going to be down on transit and, and we recognize that and I think we're doing a really good job in uh, you know in managing our shop. Then let me ask you this, Marta's role within the 13-county region, which is what the, the Atlanta Regional Commission is when they look at all these different sectors and quality of life, it's yeah. these 13 counties, and the, the creation of the ATL. I mean, is that working out, yeah. in your opinion, Jeff, and the role of the ATL? Well, yeah, no, you know, the uh, I, 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 uh, I work closely with uh, Chris Tomlinson, the, the head of the ATL. He He's a non-voting member on my board. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let me give you an example of, of why that works well and why that's so important is, you know, GDOT's making huge investments, billions and billions of dollars in managed lanes around this uh, around this region. Important projects, you know, we, we, we see that. We, we You know, we, we, know, we know what that is, and we see that how it affects it, uh, affects roadway uh, congestion. And we need to put... Um, buses within those managed lanes. It's a really uh, economical way of improving transit, you know, uh, doubling down on that state investment around highways. And not all of those managed lanes are within the MARTA jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So we can't think of a, of a, of a buses traveling in managed lanes. It's just a MARTA system. If, if MARTA just sort of, sort of focuses only within our um, three counties in the city of Atlanta. We're not looking at that bigger picture. So we're going to work, you know, we're working with Cobb County, um, talking to them about how we can help them to co- cooperatively, you know, develop a, a 285 bus corridor in those managed lanes that GDOT is going to build in a number of years. And the ATL is is a part of those conversations. And, and also, um, you know, at the end of the day, We've, we've got a we've got a system here in Georgia um, that really gives local control in transit, right? Marta mm-hmm. Marta is, is is a function of local control, local sales tax. The state has given the 13 counties the ability for the counties to to um, raise taxes, sales tax for uh, expanding transit, and um, so so transit is is a local decision, um, but it's all got to work as a network. If this doesn't work as a network, what's, mm-hmm. what's the real value? We're not going to get it. So, so we absolutely need a, uh, a regional planning entity. The ATL is no doubt filling that role, role to make sure that the plans amongst these, all of these counties don't have a whole lot of rough edges and don't exactly line up. Now, what we do know is so many of those destinations of those 13 counties will be into MARTA, mm-hmm. right? That's where a lot of the density is. That's where people are traveling into on the roads. And, and so we know that we're a key player in uh, in making all those connections work. And finally, I got just about a minute here. How optimistic are you that Congress will be able to work out something with Biden's uh, massive you know, infrastructure plan? And then included in that, of course, is more funding, more programs for public transportation. You see this happening, Jeffrey Parker. Yeah, you know, I've I've been at this a long time, and we've been talking about this for a long time. 
I've never felt, um, you know, more excited about this uh, at a national level. But but I'm going to say something else, and this is this is really key to this. Um, we've got a delegation who is so supportive of public transportation right now. Um, you know, our two senators are are keenly focused on public transportation. Nuances of the bill that you would think only people like me knew about, making sure key tweaks to make sure that we can get more here in Atlanta. And our, you know, we've got three members uh, on the House T&I committee, the committee that oversees transportation or transit. And so at a national and at a local level, you know, with the support of our delegation, I've never been more, uh, you know, optimistic about, about what needs, absolutely needs to happen, and I think it will. You know, the House is committed to voting by the end of this month. Mm-hmm. It's not done, but I'm super optimistic. All right. Marta's General Manager and CEO, Jeffrey Parker, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation about our region's public transportation. Hey, great to see you. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. There was a study led by the University of Utah and health scientists, and they suggested that more than half of those working on the front line or involved in COVID-19 care could be at risk for one or more mental health problems. We're talking physicians, nurses, emergency responders and other specialists. And the problems that they talked about were acute traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, and also what they cited as problematic alcohol use and insomnia. And this study appeared in the May edition of the Journal of Psychiatric Research. And there was something else, though, that we're not really talking about. There's another group we haven't heard much about in terms of how they're doing, how they're coping during this pandemic. Our medical residents Well, Dr. Anwar Osborne is the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Internal Medicine at Emory School of Medicine. He also serves as the Assistant Program Director for the school's Emergency Medicine Residency Program, and he joins me now. Dr. Osborne, welcome to the program. Good to have you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm honored, and uh, I want to thank you for your tireless work in uh, delivering uh, conversations with uh, community leaders. Well, thank you. It's nothing compared to what you all have been doing all this time. So we need to say thank you. But I want to begin with letting the audience know what's a typical day like for a medical resident to begin with? What do you think folks don't know? That's true. Um, I would say the best way to describe what a medical resident goes through is almost like a, a school, right? So after you graduate from medical school, you know, you're a doctor, but that's not enough. And so you uh, would enter into a training program and uh, the training program functions a lot like a school. So we have a principal um, that's called the program director, and then we have assistant principals, and I'm one of those folks, and we deliver on-the-job training uh, in various settings uh, for these uh, fresh graduates from medical school. And so uh, every month they do like a different sort of thing, and uh, I train uh, emergency uh physicians and um, their shifts uh, at uh, the Emory uh, program that I work at uh, are typically eight hours um, in various parts of the ER. Uh, We have training sites at Grady, Mm -hmm. uh, Emory at Main Campus and um, Emory at Midtown. Uh, And so they'll show up and see, uh, you know, basically everything that comes in through the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those residents work hard. Uh, You know, 
it sounds it sounds bad talking about this outside of the context but i mean we have to cap them at 80 hours a week right and like that's considerably more than a lot of professions right so uh and uh you know believe it or not like you know the residents um because there's so much to learn they they run right up against that 80 hours uh many weeks in the year 80 hours a week wow when you think back to those days for you what stands out um it stands out that uh i was probably a little bit misguided uh in that um uh, you know, when, when I was a resident, we didn't have these uh, duty hour rules, right? My first call uh, was uh, 36 hours. Um, I was awake the whole time. Uh, and I got there at seven in the morning and I left the next day at five o'clock p.m. Uh, and I mean, but you know, also I was young. So, I mean, I took a nap and then went out partying later. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not really fair um, to expect other people to do that. I don't know if it was the best way uh, to take care of patients at the time. Uh, no, and- I, I could see someone saying, no, we realized you, you were young, Dr. Osborne, but <laughs> we're glad you grew out of that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's 80 hours is a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, um, I think uh, today, you know, I have to look at, uh, in, in the rest of uh, our team has to look at, treating uh, these residents um, with respect to like, people aren't supposed to work that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's gotten a lot harder uh, in uh, the times of uh, COVID. And um, that's my next question. Because we are in this extraordinary time and these residents, this is something that, well, we know no other resident has experienced in, in our lifetime. Overall, how would you say some of them are doing? What are you noticing? Well, um, uh, that's a great question. I think um, the residents or the response is varied, but uh, you know, for our emergency uh, uh, department residents, like there's a lot of purpose and resilience in their day to day, right? So, um, when this first started back uh, back in March, you know, our um, our team decided to start meeting like on a daily basis, right? So we, um, me and the the other directors of the program um, met and uh, tried to discuss uh, what's the best way to manage the amount of hours that they have. Uh, and this is in the setting of very fluctuant um, uh, volumes in the emergency department, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you probably know this, uh, you know, there were times when we stopped doing elective surgeries and then people were afraid to come to the ER and so volumes plummeted. And then when the cases spiked, uh, the volumes went up a little bit, but then everybody was sick, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the midst of all that, you know, the places that had the rotations where the residents were learning about um, more elective procedures, uh, those ones stopped. And we had a lot of residents that were in the ER at the same time. So we were able to really cut down the shifts. Uh, and as we checked in with them, uh, what, what we were finding is that, uh, yes, it was, it was hard to work there, um, Yes, they had purpose, uh, but the way to wellness was not as easy as like work less, mm-hmm. right? And that that was probably the biggest thing I learned, and I think that's the biggest thing my team learned. Uh, you know, we there's so maybe in a month they'll do anywhere from eighteen to twenty one shifts, uh, and then we cut the shifts down to about uh, sixteen or so for most of them, uh, and that's a pretty light month. Uh, maybe four or five days a week. And so, you know, they, they like that. But at the same time, like, 
how how they gained resiliency wasn't always tied to just not working like it was tied to being able to hang out with your friends it was tired of, tied to having a drink uh at a bar after a shift right um and there's uh value in the social connection in terms of the resilience of the residents that i uh, was not so much, not so much as altogether oblivious to, but I didn't realize how important that would be until we dropped the work part till it was almost nothing. Well, and while having their own group, their own set of friends or whomever to hang out with, and it wasn't is key. But I imagine too for some who needed some resources, uh, just mm-hmm. even in needing to talk or seeking resources and how to handle the anxiety, how to handle seeing death so frequently, as you know, that we've, I've talked to health professionals right there from Emory who've talked about this. Uh, And these are professionals. These are doctors and nurses who've been in the business for decades and how they were challenged with this. So what did, what can you, what, what are you all offering in terms of resources for the residents? So, uh, we have uh, a fairly robust program, um, uh, at Emory, uh, the acronym is, is um, not as material, but the residents have access to counseling and uh, even more intense like uh, PTSD uh, sort of counseling um, with, uh, with uh, specialized faculty. Um, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, when the protests were going on in uh, Atlanta, like last summer, the Black Lives Matter protests, like uh, a lot of the um, fallout from some of those, not to get into specifics, happened, uh, you know, at Grady uh, mm-hmm. and our residents uh, sometimes were part of that. Uh, and we had to be flexible, like some of them, like, you know, probably shouldn't uh, continue the shift. You know, we gave them space to uh, uh, go home, take some time. Right. Um, and then, you know, in the setting of this, like a lot of people's family got sick. A lot of the residents got sick. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, resources available. Um that uh, they use some, I think, uh, their best resource or the resource that they uh, like the most is each other, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as much as I want to be, you know, big brother, Dr. O, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they almost always respond better, like, um, you know, amongst themselves. Uh, You know, we do have uh, uh, chief residents, right? Um, And uh, those are like our... um, like field generals, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're residents, but you know, they've been selected as leaders. And so uh, having the right group of people that can reach out and be empathetic with the residents and communicate uh, to uh, the faculty like myself, like what the residents are really feeling is also key. Well, let me ask you this. What's been that balance for you? What's, what's that been like? What's been your resource? Because you're also People are looking to you, but then you might need to look to someone else. Maybe you have your own set of practices that you use that you might feel comfortable letting our audience know how you got or getting through all of this. Uh, I think for me, the one thing that I have to uh, or had to kind of dial into is just being honest. Right. Um, There was, uh, you know, I don't want to come across as somebody who had it all figured out uh, at the beginning. Like times were hard for me, too. Uh, and I don't also want to be a, uh, complainer. Right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, if I had to take a a day off and I did, uh, you know, and it it was because my wife was in the ICU with COVID. Right. So, uh, if anybody asked, that's, that's why I didn't show up. Uh, and you know, I lost, uh, um, close family members from, from COVID. And, you know, I think, 
uh, as a group, there's a lot of value in just being honest with each other and understanding that we're kind of going through this uh, together. Uh, and uh, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm not trying to say I want to isolate, but then, you know, amongst myself and the residents and the other faculty, we get to see like all of the stuff that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And you step outside of this world and, um, you know, you go on your social media stuff or you talk to your family and they're like, oh, COVID's not that bad. Like, it's bad. Like, I was looking at it the whole time. You know, like I pronounce people, you know, the residents are uh, uh, struggling to make it through. So um, there is a sort of shared experience um, that I've uh, tapped into also. Dr. Osborne, you, when you have to share that grim news to family members, loved ones, and your residents, I don't know if your residents are with you, but how do you, how do you all I don't know if you educate's the right word, but how do you all prepare them for having to do that, to deliver uh, that, that news? Uh, uh, that's a good question. You know, fortunately, like we uh, have um, like uh, one of the, this, I don't know what the uh, analog for forefathers is, foremothers of um, palliative care and uh, grief counseling work in the emergency department as part of our faculty, right? So. Um, you know, nationally, like the residents that we have get some of the best training possible for uh, grief disclosure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they we spend uh, time both in uh, simulation uh, and uh, more formal lecture didactics in training them how to uh, deliver this news. Uh, now, we have had to be flexible. Um, there's times when like we have to deliver news like that when um, people aren't uh, in the building, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, a whole team of, uh, uh, of social workers and chaplains that kind of help us navigate, like, when and how is the best time to uh, uh, work on that aspect of uh, patient care. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, really, it requires like a, a whole group approach um, that includes, uh, you know, the chaplains, nurses, uh, and uh, social work to, to put us in a position where we could uh, treat the family with the most dignity possible. And finally, Dr. Osborne, I want to get this question in. Are you able to recognize when a resident might be at that breaking point? And perhaps they may not be, you know, telling you that information, or but you, you just recognize that those signs. You were able to then intervene? Um, I would like to think so. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, also like to think that um, we empower the other residents, particularly our, our uh, chief residents, uh, to be on the lookout and uh, help us to find those people. Because as, as good as I might think I am at uh, finding uh, a troubled resident, um, I'm not smarter than the collective of the leadership team around me, by no means. So. Uh, I think, um, you know, together, I think we do a pretty good job at finding people who are at risk. Uh, I, For me personally, when I work closely with a resident, you know, I definitely try to do a check-in uh, and make sure, you know, the, the little things that I can do to put them in touch with the things that they enjoy about work uh, are still there and then make sure that they understand that, um, uh, you know, not being okay is, is okay. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what we're dealing with right now. Not being okay is okay. Make sure you let them know that we appreciate everything that they're doing and you all as well. Dr. Anwar Osborne, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Internal Medicine at Emory School of Medicine. Also, he serves as the Assistant Program Director of the school's Emergency Medicine Residency Program. 
Dr. Osborne, thank you for taking the time again. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate everything that you all have been doing during this pandemic. All right. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk. You have a good day. You too. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other program. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of the day's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as our podcast. So subscribe to wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.